1: Hello, and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Martin Gluckman. He's a researcher at the University of Cape Town. He's also the director of the Sanskrit Research Institute. And he has been a very busy man creating some fascinating, useful tools for the Sanskrit world. Um, Martin, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Raj. Well, thank you so much for um, having me here, and um, it's lovely to, to meet you online.
1: Lovely to meet you as well. I was saying in our email exchange that uh, uh, you are some sort of, uh, uh, you know, how do you say, Kutumba? Uh, you know, we have a we have a common link, uh, uh, the lovely McComas Taylor from Australia National University. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you studied with him, did you not?
0: That's absolutely correct. Um, it has a little bit of a funny um, backstory because, I encountered Sanskrit first in 1999 um, through my studies with Ayurveda. I had started studying Ayurveda in South Africa before I'd set foot on Indian shores. And um, when I reached India, I continued, that was in 2003, I continued my studies in Ayurveda. And I realized, if I really want to get a deep understanding of Indian medical systems, I have to know the language. Um, Just like many yoga teachers today will sort of embark on that same thought process and I had this in my thought to study Sanskrit but I had no idea how to do it and fortunately I landed in a place called Orival in 2007 and one of the official languages of Oroville was indeed Sanskrit so you would walk around Oroville and actually see um, the names of offices and of buildings written in one of its official languages the other ones I believe were English, French, and Tamil. And um, when I got to Auroville, I I met a a lovely Canadian, incidentally, um, who had renamed himself Agni. Um, And he started teaching me basic Sanskrit. And then I met a lady from West Bengal named Chandrima, who also started teaching me. But as I started scratching the surface, I realized that this is a mountain, a, a particularly tall mountain, and without extreme discipline and lots of sticks forcing me to study I'm not going to master it and reach any even brown belt or blue belt or black belt if you use judo as an analogy. So I started in around 2009 looking around where to study Sanskrit. Oxford was actually one of the places but unfortunately I had to relocate from India to Oxford. Now I've visited Oxford and I'm very fond of Oxford however I didn't want to leave India. I was very much in love Still, am very much in love with living in India, and then I it caught my eye. I think it was on YouTube. I found McComas, um some of his lovely namo Namaha, Mama Nama Masa. and um, uh, you're probably familiar with those. And I, and then I saw he was doing an online Sanskrit um, program, and I immediately registered, signed up, and the rest is history. I became his student. Um, I did three years undergraduate as an audit student, and then I got in. Um, postgraduate as um, an official student, because they closed the audit program briefly. So that kind of was um, great. And um, that's how I met McComas. And the funny other part of the story is that Australian National University is ANU. And I always found that a bit funny that it, it has a beautiful meaning in Sanskrit, um, because ANU is this lovely sort of atomic kind of tiny um, word. So that's the story of how I met um. Dr McComas Taylor, and um, we were uh, only in contact online because he was he was an expert in this um, digital delivery he had students on campus but he was pioneering this adobe connect long before COVID, and long before um, this sort of rapid push to online learning um, this last year and a half. Um, and here was already doing ipad um, epub textbooks and many really wonderful things and all of that really was up my alley as so to speak because i was a computer geek and i was deeply digitally inclined since age 13 so it was really like a lovely marriage and i found the perfect sanskrit guru and that's the story of meeting McComas and anu
1: so many thoughts come to mind um As is the custom on this podcast, I'll limit my voice so as to leave as much space for yours as possible, but I can't resist this, this, first of all, it's impossible for someone to explain their relationship with Sanskrit without some interesting, fascinating, serendipitous story. You know, there's always some, so there's always some Purana, a tale within a tale within a tale that gets you there. And yours happens to include a Canadian. Um, I'm currently uh, based in Toronto, Canada. A Canadian named Agni, and I, I was thinking to myself, perhaps they named themselves Agni to warm up from the Canadian winter. But that's a whole <laughs> different, that's a whole different situation. Um, so you've got this, this love of, 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 Deva Bhasha, uh, you've got this, this, this love of tech and, uh, from this marriage, uh, came many, uh, many, a, uh, interesting offspring. Tell us a little bit about what you've done with this synergy.
0: Yeah. So around 2010, I started to study formally, um, with, ANU, and I remember Makoma saying, um, once you're sort of on the train, don't get off. Um, don't fall behind. Because as you know, as you would know, there's a large amount of material you've got to memorize, you've got to um, cognize, and you've got to be able to recall. It's It really stretches your neuron, Sanskrit. And this is the beauty of the language. It's a complex, rich, diverse language. If you just look at the synonyms, and, and this is one of the things that I'll talk about shortly, um, Uh, If I say to you, Raj, like how many words have you got for sun in English? Um, I'm assuming English is one of your first languages. Just just go for it. Tell me how many you can come up with. Not as many as Sanskrit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So let's try Um, sun, helio, but that's kind of from Greek and solar, you know, and that's about it. Well, I think um, I'm going to look it up, but it was more than 200, 250 in Sanskrit. Um, for Sun, basically, when we created a synonym tool. So a lot of these sort of uniquenesses of the language were triggers for my marriage with technology and Sanskrit. And one of the first things I did, McComas had this very famous little book. um, You might have heard about it called The Little Red Book. Now, this was a little red book. Um, If I'm not mistaken, I think it was also Mao Zedong who had a little red book. And I I always found that beautifully hilarious because McComas had this link to China and Chinese. Um, one of the, I think it was Mandarin, and that he had studied, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And one of the things when you enrolled with him is you got this little red book in the post, which came and it was basically tattered within six months because you were referencing it so much. And what I did first was I made like a digital, just using Google sites. Um, The beauty of being in Oroville is we always had volunteers and we had um, people that wanted to, to help. And um, from day one of sort of creating these projects, I always had people that were here that had skills, they had time, and they wanted to do something useful. Um, And this has really been the great um, uh, base uh, of of the work that I've done. So The Little Red Book was the first um, work. And I just innocently shared that with the students, and it was well-received. And McComas is now also recommending that digital Little Red Book. And the second thing that happened, um, and this is all preceding the dictionary, um, that is, uh, um, maybe we'll come to to a little bit later. Um, The second thing I did was I realized, like, actually it was funny, um, a bit of a funny story once again. I went to the World Sanskrit Book Fair. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I think it was the first World Sanskrit Book Fair. It was in Bangalore, and it was also... um, just when I was starting my studies around 2011, I was in the first year or second year at ANU, possibly my first year. And I saw a whole lot of people creating keyboards for typing Sanskrit and they went like R, E, E, O, O, like instead of QWERTY. And then there was another option doing it another way. And I looked at all of these and I thought, well, hang on, why not, you've already got this neural map in your mind of the QWERTY keyboard. Why not make it that you can touch type Sanskrit on your QWERTY keyboard? So the second thing I did was a project called Sanskrit Writer. It's just very um, non-imaginatively named, but it tells you what it does. And it allows you to touch type Sanskrit. So I would sit in the classes and I and I would type words um, in Devanagari or in transliteration um, much faster than anyone else could type. And people would say like, hey, what are you doing? And I was dogfooding in the software industry where I was using up my own software. And then that went into release that's called Sanskrit Writer. Um, So a lot of the things were just solving problems as they came my way and saying, like, what is a better way to do this? And about the third thing that I did was the dictionary. And the dictionary, of course, there's great efforts in, in lexicons of Sanskrit, as you probably know, Apten, Monia Williams. Um, and so many other dictionaries that preceded them also that were compiled into these sort of English um, to Sanskrit dictionaries, and many in German and French and Russian. Um, But what we did is I wanted to kind of make it easier and also combine many dictionaries into one, make them what's sort of called a meta dictionary. And that's exactly what we did. And there was a lovely um, Lady Kudevi Priya in our office at the time, who was a brilliant programmer in PHP. And we just started to make dictionary we got the um, public domain data from the University of Cologne um, wonderful work done by people like Thomas Melton um, and many other uh, scholars Peter Schaaf had been part of that and we just started to prepare the data and then create these meta dictionaries now once again I started using it during my studies and it really helped and there were obviously walls that I hit like I wasn't happy that you couldn't look up inflected forms easily even though Gerard Hewitt had made a tools to do that. It wasn't a dictionary. And um, so we built in everything. We put in an Ayurvedic medical dictionary. We put in um, a grammatical dictionary, Abhyanka's, you're probably familiar with that one. Um, So there's still a whole, actually there's a waiting list of um, further data. We're adding Ulfrecht and there's a long waiting list because we've got multiple um, pipelines, multiple projects. We can't move always as fast as we would like to. But um, basically, the idea with that dictionary is as soon as we find data to put it in and then rank the data in terms of relevance. So it's kind of like a meta dictionary. So those were three of the projects. And as we started doing more projects, it opened up the need to do um, more and more things. Um, So we started adding resources like we were uh, using McDonald's grammar and then we just made a digital... McDonald's grammar, basically, Um, all the information was already in the public domain, but it wasn't searchable. So that power of being able to sort of search at your fingertips, the same with a little red book, um, you were always referencing, but you couldn't type and search. Um, You had to sort of look it up. And those 10, 15, 20 seconds of paging through and looking up, they obviously take time. It's the same with looking up in a print dictionary versus an online dictionary. It's always going to be quicker in an online dictionary. Um, And those minutes already when you um, every minute is kind of precious today. You've pulled in so many directions. We aren't the purohits sitting around um, being supported by the kings anymore. Like in Melkote three generations ago, everyone got a stipend from the king and they just you know, did their things. And of course, when the king was uh, replaced by a democratic India, those stipends, you had to you know, go and get a degree, a PhD, and then go and look for grants um, like most researchers do. It was no longer on autopilot. So there was a big change um but yeah so those were some of the things I'll talk more about um how we sort of expanded and and did more more things but it was kind of like as my journey with Sanskrit and my marriage to Sanskrit because it is kind of a marriage you know you actually it becomes a husband or a wife the language um that's the sort of level of commitment and intimacy that it requires um but as my journey unfolded and a team grew around the work in Orville. this incredible team, through the gift economy, um, more ideas came. And shortly after building the dictionary, we had Monia Williams, upton and I think McDonald, and then we added the McDonald Vedic. Um, so it wasn't just giving you because you know, uh, most likely that the meanings changed over the Vedic in the middle and the classical Sanskrit, there's kind of three strata um, happening. So a word like Asura might have been very positive in the Vedic, but became quite negative in the classical. Um, and many such words had those, those changed. A word like soma was very common in the Vedic, but it lost um, favor in the classical. No one almost, except for when you're attending a, a Yajna, um, but no one's really talking much about soma in India. But if you look in our word frequency tool, you'll see that soma was a big deal. It was sort of top of the pops um, uh, BC in India, you know, in the Vedic 1500. Um, 500 BC and so forth. So one of the things we did next was we did a synonym tool. Um, and had th- the whole thing and my whole approach was like this, if someone's already done it well, um, don't do it basically, just move on. Um, if it hasn't done as well as it could be done, it's a bit like um, the analogy of what Tesla did with electric cars. There were electric cars before, there was actually a brilliant Indian electric car, the Revver, Um, there was one in South Africa called the Jewel, but no one had actually done it well. It wasn't like he invented electric cars. It's just that he did it really, really well. He made them very safe, very fast, um, very affordable. Total cost of ownership was low. So this is kind of was my um, strategy with anything that we did. So before doing the the meta dictionary of combining many dictionaries, I looked around and I said, has anyone done a meta dictionary with a sort of Google-like simple interface? answer was no. So then I said, okay, I'm going to, it's obviously hundreds or thousands of hours of commitment of many people working on it. Um, And it was managing many different teams in different time zones because we have remote volunteers and we have um, people on campus in Orville, basically. So the one that was quite exciting, it came I think around 2011 was a word freak, um, a a synonym tool for Sanskrit. So you can actually go onto the dictionary And you'll see you can put an English word like sun in the dictionary, and um, you can click on that word across languages. It's a bit cryptic. The idea there was to look at the synonyms in Sanskrit and then look at it in 103 languages. Um, Because as you would know, all the Indo-European languages would have possibly some link to some Sanskrit word. So the idea would be on your right side, you would see, uh, actually, sorry, I stand corrected. There's 405 synonyms for the word sun. Um, so there's Abhi, Shumat, um, there's Adi Deva, the first um, lord, you know, Aditeya, Aditya, Adri, Aga, Agira, you know, I'm not going to read, or Hari is a name for Sun, Raga is a name for some, Raka, so I'm not going to read them all, but no one had created these synonyms, and I remember presenting it at a conference at the Serial Bender Society, and people were like, well, we knew there were a lot of words because the pundits could rattle off like 20, 30 words, um, particularly from the um, Amara kosha. That's like basically lists of, of synonyms. But this blew everything out the water. And this is only because we use digital tools because we could mine synonyms. Once we had these meta um, dictionaries, we had a lot of English and then we could isolate the English words and we could mine and say, OK, what are all the Sanskrit words for tree? And... Um, That's kind of like what we did. So the dictionary was there, the typing tool. We created some of these reference tools. The synonym was next. And then the next one that I'll just mention in this um, uh, section is that we did a word frequency tool, which I believe um, Antonia is actually using for um, her flashcards. And that's exactly why we did it. Um, You know that Sanskrit is quite challenging and um, complex to study. I would say you need. you probably need three serious years to really like get get to to grasp with it, but but probably like twelve years to master it. You know, like that was the traditional one cycle of Brihaspati in the um, Kundali. That was like the tradition in India. Twelve years um, to really get to like a black belt level. Um, so to make it easier, we I looked around and I said, is there a word frequency tool for Sanskrit? There was nothing yet existing. Um, If they had been, we wouldn't have done it. And then what we did is we took the incredible work of Oliver Helvig. He had tagged um, millions of Sanskrit words in the digital corpus of Sanskrit. He'd actually done it solo. Um, I think he deserves an award for that incredible effort. It wasn't like he had teams of people doing it. And um, I think it's got up to about 3 million. It was around 2 million when we imported the data. And based on that tag data, we Python did and used all sorts of scripts. It took about three to six months, that project. It was a research project, and then we've produced this word frequency tool for Sanskrit. So that was kind of like our fourth um, output. And for us, really, the success is that people are using what we make. Um, if we make something, we really want people to use it and to benefit from it. It should speed up their acquisition of Sanskrit. It should um, accelerate their appreciation of Sanskrit, and it should make them fall in love quicker with Sanskrit.
1: So who are the people who are benefiting from this, or otherwise put, who is this geared towards, in your view?
0: That's a great question. Well, the dictionary, when we look at the analytics, it's used by tens of thousands of people. Google says 100,000 unique visitors a month. But of course, a lot of those people could be just looking for a tattoo in Sanskrit. Um, probably um, you know, the most common thing for Sanskrit is like people want a tattoo in it. They think it's exotic, like probably they want a tattoo in Chinese. Um, uh, the, uh, the um, ideographic letters. Um, I don't know why they don't want to tattoos in the Indus um, script. I, I would certainly want in the Indus script if, if it was me. But um, basically the, the thing for us is that we get a lot of feedback and it's being used by a lot of students and a lot of teachers, um, our tools. We've just put them out there in the public domain. Um, they're all free of charge. There's no, no paywalls. Um, we do have a donate button of the last year just to cover some of the server costs, um, um, but it's, it's no expectation or need, basically. And um, it's being used, basically, by anyone from the general public who just has a, a, a vague interest in Sanskrit to very serious students, secondary, primary. Um, I know the St. James schools are um, you know, teaching on a high level um, and also, of course, in India and then particularly the tertiary students. And then we've got all levels of tools, um, some are just for general interest, like we've we built something called a root explorer. Um, the datus and the um, the root system of Sanskrit is, is very unique um, and very, very fascinating. No other language has sus- such a systemized and concretized root system. And this was a subject of great research for many scholars. And we created this thing called a root explorer where you could search for a root or, or the definition of a root and, there's around 2000 odd roots, And you would um, then click on the root, and it would expand it using using the guna and the Vrdi, it would expand it and then look for words that have expanded from those um, prefixes basically. And it gives you so a a, a word um, would you would trace the word back to the root very, very clearly. Um, um, Basically have this breadcrumb trail. And this is really one of like Sanskrit has these gifts that it gives you like The gifts are the literature. Like no, it has the largest corpus of literature um, extent. This is um, a subject of my focus for the for the um, last year to two years. I've been working on the Sanskrit literature on a project called Sanskrit Archive. We'll talk about that a bit later. Um, That hasn't been published yet because it's such a large project um, and it's rather ambitious. It's kind of like a moonshot. So um, a lot of things have to sort of line up for that to succeed. But I think we are at the point where we will succeed with that, um, at least to produce something. I'm not saying it's going to be um, as good as it can get, but it will be in the right direction um, to create like a single archive of extensive Sanskrit literature and kind of give people this sort of overview of what's out there. So this sort of the unique gifts of Sanskrit or the complexity of the grammar and the, the, the incredible standardization that you can read something, um, from 1,000 years ago, from 2,000 years ago, and you can read it from 300 years ago, and it will still be the same grammar, grammatical system. You cannot read Chaucer, Shakespeare, and um, uh, a rap song, and um, a Hollywood movie script, and expect all those Englishes to have the same standardized grammar. The grammars have changed, and the vocabularies have changed, and so forth. So Panini, by sort of creating this a crystallization of the language and um, did it an incredible service. Some would say um, there's a positive, there's, there's also a way off because the, by sort of freezing the grammar, you also limit the language, but it also freezes the knowledge that it can stay very consistent and very stable. And there's this incredible peace and stability, you know, people see India on the as this chaotic, sort of disorganized country with wires hanging out of every tent pole, um, a telephone pole, but actually it's the most stable, and I can say this authoritatively, I visited 65 countries and lived in maybe 10, 12 countries at least for considerable time. Um, I can say that it is the most stable, um, peaceful country that I've ever been in. Um, for example, anti-Semitism does not exist and has not existed in India. Um, I'm of Jewish roots. And I was once researching, people were like saying, well, there's a rise of anti-Semitism around the world. And they're saying, "Okay, well, let me research anti-Semitism in India. And there wasn't any um, of note. Um, Actually, it was quite the opposite. Um, There was this incredible support by whoever was ruling of the Jews and of Judaism. Um, And it just blended in with this incredible, um, fragrant tapestry of any way is okay to find the divine or, you know, have no divine. You can you can have. Atman or Anatman, you can have, um, you know, you can have Deva or Adeva, you can have any, you know, you can have Dvaita or Advaita. India gives you basically a smorgasbord of every possible philosophy, and you can choose. So, um, yeah, this was my journey, and the tools were on the journey. But to go back to your question of who's using it, hopefully, um, as many people as possible who can benefit. Um, We never marketed or sort of advertised. We just put the things out there. We publish them. And then if it's a good thing, it goes basically um, viral. Um, That's the beauty of digital tools. Um, We're not printing books that need trees to be chopped down and need to be sitting in a warehouse to get to people. We're basically putting everything digital. Um, So hopefully as many people as possible. We do track the metrics, um, but we're not sort of motivated by how many people. We're motivated by doing um, the best we can and um, making the most incredible tools with Sanskrit. And uh, more recently with the San and Khoi languages, um, we'll talk about that also maybe a bit later, how San has led to the other San, which is the um, the San people of South Africa. Um, so that's um, so who uses this it.
1: May be, this may be a good opportunity to talk about that work.
0: I'd love to. So about two years ago, um, uh, I gave a lecture on invitation at the UCT um, adult education, I think it's the summer school programs. And the, they asked me to talk on my topic, which was the work of Sri and Sanskrit and this digital tools and um, computational linguistics and digital humanities. And I gave the lecture and after the lecture, uh, they invited me to collaborate with them on digital tools for the San and Khoi languages. Now, where we had already uh, digital dictionaries for Sanskrit, like Cologne University had published and um, Chicago University and the Sanskrit Library and so many other projects, Oliver Helvig had done uh, dictionaries with the DCS. Um, uh, There was actually no digital work for the San and the Khoi languages. These are um, basically uh, groups of languages that are uh, notable for their click um, sounds, basically. Some of them have more than a hundred unique sounds, so they have the most diverse sets of sounds. Um, they have no link to the um, Indo-European languages like Sanskrit, basically. They are incredibly beautiful languages. They carry the most beautiful stories, and genetically, they are connected with the oldest humans um, around. All humans on Earth have come ex Africa, we've all come out of Africa. This um, has happened through two migrations, one went up uh, through the Nile Valley, and then one went across the Horn of Africa, and then went into the Arabian Peninsula. And obviously, these um, cultures were foragers. we did not have agriculture, we did not have domestic animals. So going from this very developed um, uh, Sanskritic World of, um, you know, if you read the Charaka Samhita, I remember the University of Vienna had this beautiful project, I think it was with Dagmar Ujastic also, um, and they were showing how there was this incredible diversity of, you know, um, hundreds of fruits were used and different woods for different treatments and therapies, and then different um, practices you would do for entertaining guests. Um, So everything was so well documented in the the manuscriptic tradition. Um, With the San people, it was all in these beautiful stories and the stories were all connected to cosmology um, and very much connected to the earth and connected to woman and connected to real senses of community. So it's been an incredible journey into um, this sort of early development of language. I remember writing to Norm Chomsky and asking him to connect me with sort of um, scholars working with the um, the click languages and understanding like how they developed and there is a um, scholar in Holland I think it's who had who done incredible work on um, arguing very strongly that the earliest human languages were the click languages basically and um, I'm not expert enough to say yes or no and it's like many things like where did the Indo seals come from and were they language or were they just seals for products um, this it, it's a subject that we might not get clarity, we don't have a Rosetta Stone for the Indus seals, um, or Indus script, depending who you're asking. Um, There are scholars that would say definitively like Akshopapola, it's this, or um, Dr. Mahadevan, he passed away, the late Dr. Mahadevan, he said it was was that. But um, when I researched it, it, we don't have a a concrete answer. So um, with the early development of language, but we do know that the first people of Earth, the first People and all of our ancestors genetically have come out of the San people, so it's been actually incredible privilege to work with the University of Cape Town with the um, San and Khoi unit um, and to work with these languages. So I'm really what I'm doing there's I'm translating what I did with Sanskrit, which was take digital tools, collate information, and make things accessible and easy to use, and also engage. A bull for, uh, by the people who are um, still holding these languages. So the people still holding the San and Khoi languages. Um, and most of these languages are endangered or moribund. Um, so basically um, it's a critical and urgent work that we're doing there. But it's been a beautiful journey. And I always joke, once again, it's a play because Sanskrit went to San um, you know, so that you've got this sort of play um, just like you had highlighted earlier with Agni, and that's Agni-Ele is that first opening line of the Rigveda, which is the oldest um, Sanskrit literature, one of the oldest literatures of the world. Um, and um, yeah, it's been—it's it, always funny. You feel like the gods are laughing at you all the time when you work in this field. So that's the—that's uh, the journey from Sanskrit, and it's an ongoing journey, and it will be many, many years of work collaborating on uh, the San and Khoi languages. Um,
1: Fascinating work. Uh, I often feel that um, uh, the the gods are laughing with me, but who knows. Um, um, One final question. Uh, What do you see as the future of this work? What are next steps? Where's this headed? Do you think?
0: Well, um, with the Sanskrit work, like the moonshot, that I kind of had in my mind for the last five plus years. um, And has largely been inspired by the incredible work of people like Peter Schaaf, Oliver Helwig, um, Sheldon Pollock, Dominic Wojastic. There's so many, too numerous to mention. I kind of wanted to give the gift for the next generations that there was a place on the internet where you could have a place to see a bird's eye view or a map of what's out there. Now, the closest things that we have out there that were done, that we're sort of mapping what's out there, we know it's vast. It's like kind of, we're sitting together in a room and we know that there's a world out there, but no one's, there's been no Bartholomew Dias or or Columbus or early Phoenician discoveries, or no one's gone out and discovered the world, Um, but we have a map. So the maps were done by Alfrecht and then incredible work, 85 years by the University of Madras, it was called the New Catalogus Catalogorum. And what they did is they went out and they collected all the manuscript catalogs and they said, what is out there? And we've been trying to work with these data sets and to get them into digital forms. There's also some incredible contemporary efforts. Um, there's the Pundit project by Jogel Bronner, um, And there would be many, too numerous to mention, but many incredible projects. But I was trying to kind of bring everything together and give people a map. and. Um, it's been a multi-year project we've had incredible volunteers working on it we've had people coming out of the IT industry that were earning huge salaries at startups or big corporations and then really give themselves um, and that's really the beauty of this this magical place called horrible this little forest um, I often um, compare it to the Gauls in Asterix and Obelix you've got this little village that's not the Roman Empire but we've got this little fo- forest of incredible creative people. We've got 53 nations, 3,000 people. Um, we've planted 5 million trees. So um, it's an amazing space to work from. And um, we've got this incredible team. We've got um, Sashka from Macedonia. We've got Gali from the Basque country from Spain and Basque. Um, we've got um, Gauri from Mumbai. Um, and then a whole lot of volunteers all around the world um, in US, um, in, in um England, Canada, that are contributing basically their time. Um, time is the real currency, you know, like or, that people are giving to our project, and it's been amazing. Recently, two engineers from Facebook are volunteering, so we've got this huge amount of data. Oh, and we've also got five um, team members from Google that want to help and get involved and volunteer. And there's a collaboration with um, the Samhita project. I don't know if you've heard about that project. This is under Suda Gopala Krishnan. She's um, trying to map, whereas the NCC's forte was mapping what's in India largely and looking uh, minorly at what's outside of India, the Samhita is going to look extensively and in great detail at what's outside of India, and particularly what's in Nepal. So the estimates that I have, and these are vague, um, and the numbers could vary by a number of, of millions, we've roughly got around 10 million manuscripts inside of India. Um, the NMN, National Mission of Manuscripts, counted around four or five million um, in their latest count. And uh, well, there could even be, I think it was David Pingree who said that could even be by a factor of four or five, much more than the 10 million I mentioned. It could be 30 million or 20 million, I don't know. Um, and I think it's Greek and Latin have 30,000 each, just to put it into perspective. And that's what forms the basis of Western civilization and classics. Um, uh, Right, so what we've been trying to do is sort of grapple and grasp this very vast corpus of Sanskrit literature, and once again I highlight it's the largest literature of the world before Gothenburg. So before we had the printing press, the largest, if if you and I were to sit pre-Gutenberg and say, what's the largest amount uh, and language that has the largest literature on earth, it would be in Sanskrit. This needs to really be recognized, and we wanted to kind of give people a map so we could look genealogically, geographically, chronologically at this data. So this is our moonshot, and this is what's occupied us for the last year and a half. Um, it is an ambitious project. It is um, it is kind of like when I think about it, um, it requires a lot of CPU cycles, and it requires a very um, a very uh, extensive team and collaboration, but. As um, we've sort of snowballed with our work, we've attracted more and more people who've been interested. About once a week, we get someone writing to us on our website, org, clicking on the volunteer link and just saying we'd like to volunteer. So I'm confident that we will be able to put something out there where people can um, visually explore, you know, at least see a map of what's out there. Um, there are always issues with permissions and copyright um, and who owns particular data, Ofrecht is not copyrighted, the NCC is partly under copyright, the very early works are not because they started in the 1930s, um, so the volume one is out of copyright, but uh, we are hoping that the um, University of Madras and the National Mission of Manuscripts and the ministries of the Indian government that sort of um, funded it um, through the NMM will hopefully open in public domain this um, incredibly value, valuable data so it can be put out there but that's what we occupied on now and then um we do have a few other things that we're working on like we're improving the dictionary constantly um and we keep producing tools and also posters as we see there's a need basically um for sanskrit and it's been really a privilege and an honor to work with this language
1: the work that you're doing is is extremely important um my sense is that uh you will succeed in the map that you see to create it seems that the gods are supporting your endeavors to <laughs> the various times so much. who have come forth um and i suspect in the back of my brain for a number of years I, uh, there's this wish list of a of a, a mapping of the puranas a place where the uh, one can visit a site and see translations, uh, manuscripts. The Puranas are so important and so nebulous. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, and I, I I, suspect, dare I say, uh, <laughs> on the air, that um, we just might collaborate on that at some point. Um, I would
0: absolutely love to. Uh,
1: thank you so much for appearing on the podcast today, Mark. Uh,
0: thank you, Raj, for having me. And thank you for the incredible work you're doing um, for Sanskrit and um, all all the people out there listening, I hope that they um, will continue to listen to your podcast. It's, it's, it's really something that, um, that gives the most um, incredible insights of these wonderful people working with Sanskrit.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Martin Gluckman, a researcher at the University of Cape Town and director of the Sanskrit Research institute uh he's based in Oroville, truly a global uh, village so to speak um and he's been doing some phenomenal work uh in in facilitating the language of the gods entering not only the world of men but uh the online world of human beings until next time stay safe stay sane keep listening and uh keep exploring this 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 jewel called Sanskrit take care